Let's go ahead and pray and uh, get started here this evening. Lord, we thank you for uh, every book of the Bible that you've given to us, and we thank you for this book especially as it uh, gives us an understanding of how this message uh, went from a very small, narrow group of people in a region to becoming uh, an influence in the whole world. And uh, may we rejoice in this and realize it's uh, something that uh, you desire for every generation. But uh, we're thankful for this book of Acts. Help us to learn from it this evening, better able to study it. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this evening we're looking at the book of Acts, and uh, it is a book that, it is a connection book. Uh, And while you're taking your notes, turn to Acts chapter 1 while we're there, because we will start and have several starting points from there and then go into the book for a couple of things with Acts chapter 1. But uh, it is a continuation book because you go, well, who wrote this book? Well, we're not told directly, but if you assume that the book of Luke is written by Luke, that this book is a continuation of the previous book because in this, as you read Acts chapter 1 and you go through Acts chapter 1, you find that there is a statement about uh, writing to one most excellent Theophilus. And as far as we can tell, Theophilus may have been the individual's real name, but it may have been a name that just kept it quiet to exactly who he was. The name Theophilus means friend of God. And uh, it... um, go. Uh, And it probably this individual is an official in the Roman government because most excellent is a term that Paul used for Felix and Festus, these individuals, people who are in leadership, uh, and uh, that this may very well have been an individual who had gotten saved. Uh, Some have suggested the fact that perhaps he was an individual who was wanting uh, and paid Luke to do this, to do some research and gather up a book and pay for uh, his time and his ability to be able to do some of these things to come up with, first of all, a gospel which was talking about what Jesus' life was like. And then second of all, uh, that he then explained how that in 30 years' time, the gospel had gone from being in just Jerusalem to all over the Roman world. And so uh, this uh, individual was a, uh, one who had, you know, we call a sequel, some call it two books. Uh, it could have been very well volume one, volume two, and came out uh, generally about the same time, but uh, may not have just because of the introduction again to Theophilus. So it is a two-part book. You can read from Luke, and you get a little bit of overlap in the story about Jesus uh, ascending to heaven, uh, but it's, it's designed to be one and then part two, and we'll talk a little bit more about why. The theme of this book, uh, we've talked a little bit about it when we talked about the whole message of the New Testament, is just simply this, the expansion of the good news. And the word good news is, uh, or the phrase good news is a translation of the word gospel. Uh, That's what the gospel is. It's good news. The expansion of the good news of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem to the far reaches of the world. It goes to uh, the farthest places uh, and you go, well, does it really? By the time we get done with the book of Acts, uh, we will explain why, but you do have uh, that Romans, uh, or excuse me, Acts 1-8 tells us that that is the purpose behind this book, 
Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get to the outline here in a second. Uh, written for, I mean, this is no surprise, written for Theophilus, but also for others who would want to explain the growth of, growth of Christianity. You got now something you can hand to people and they go, well, how did you get to this point? And some have suggested, and they're from historical records and the like, it seems like that when this book of Acts was written, there were copies paid for, or there was people paid to come up with copies of this. So it could be distributed for people to read. Uh, and so there was an intentionality about this and very well would have been a book to explain uh, how that Christianity got from one place to the other. You say the time period this is written, more than likely during the two-year imprisonment of Paul in Rome. You read at the end of Acts, it says that Paul is there in Rome for two years and he's preaching the gospel and doing these type of things. And it's kind of a general statement uh, but uh, he's there in Rome, and it kind of ends the story right there. Um, most people think that that imprisonment was not the one that ended the life of Paul. They uh, suggest the fact that uh, from history and church history that uh, Paul was released, and he had some time out. Nero burned Rome to the ground, blamed Christians in AD 64, and this is when he then uh, goes about capturing some of the key leaders, Paul, Peter, uh, and others, and Second Timothy is probably the last book that he wrote, but that's in his second imprisonment when he was in Rome, because at that point he's talking about, I finished the course, you know, these type of things. And uh, so uh, this one, Acts kind of ends you know, several years before Paul dies uh, and is executed. So it's probably around that time frame that you have this book written. The next section you have in your notes there is the title, okay? Uh, if you were to look in your Bible, uh, you would probably have as the title of this book uh, the Acts of the Apostles, not just Acts. They, they add that Acts of the Apostles. And as you read that, the name of these books were, as you read this, were given generations afterwards to identify what the name of the book was. Okay? Uh, you know, when it first came out, it's probably the history of Christianity according to Luke or something like that when it came out. And, oh, here's the story of Jesus written by Luke. And then, you know, the titles got formalized over time. And when I refer to this book, I usually just refer to it as Acts. And it's for a reason. Because as I read this book, I, I am not looking at this and saying that this is just merely the Acts of the Apostles. Because it's not. Especially when you get to Acts chapter 6, 7, and 8, you have two individuals that are prominent in those chapters, and they're not Apostles. In fact, they're not pastors. They're deacons. At least that's the title that they're given in Acts chapter 6. They're chosen by the church in Jerusalem to take care of uh, some of the problems with the widows in the community there in the church and, and dealing with that. And you have one named Stephen who gets himself in trouble for witnessing in the, the local synagogue and is stoned uh, to death. And then you have an individual by the name of Philip, and it's not Philip the Apostle. 
It's Philip the deacon who goes to the middle of the desert and finds this man who's an Ethiopian eunuch uh, that he then proclaims Christ from Isaiah 53 to this man and preaches that. And you have this story that goes there. And then you find later on that Philip's a part of this and he's got four daughters who are prophets or prophetesses, if you want to put it that way. But uh, they're individuals that are ones that are well-known in the church. So you go, it's not necessarily that this is the Acts of the Apostles, and it's not, I mean, if you're going to say that, how many apostles really of their activities do you have described? Peter, perhaps John, James gets beheaded. You know, not much activity there. Um, And then Paul. Where are the rest of the apostles? Mm, Yeah, well, they were doing other things, some going to India, some to uh, regions of Armenia and places like that, uh, giving the gospel down into Africa. So, you know, you have these type of things, but it's not really the acts of the apostles. It kind of, well, gives uh, less dimension to what this book really was, uh, according to Luke. yeah, I've said some of the, some say that this is the book of the, about the acts of the Holy Spirit, because there's some fantastic occasions where the Holy Spirit gets involved. Acts chapter two, uh, Pentecost, you have the sound of mighty rushing wind, the the flames coming down and resting over the heads like the Shekinah glory over the temple. Now you have these people who have well. Their body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, and God is residing in them. And this picture of the flame over their head uh, is there, and they start speaking in tongues. And you get later on in the book and you have a couple more times where all of a sudden people start speaking in tongues. And there are certain occasions where the Spirit's involved in the story and uh, there are certain things that the Spirit reveals in the story of Ananias and Sapphira and these type of things. And you could say, okay, this is kind of the working, the, the acts of the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, doing a work in the church and individuals in the church. And you could say, okay, yeah, that that might go along with the book. And you could say that. Or maybe you just call it the Acts of the Church. Because Acts 2, you have the start of the church. That's the Pentecost event. And church starts there. And you're like, okay, I, I see this. Church is getting started and church is starting other churches. You know, the church at this is the thing that I read uh, when you talk about sending Paul out for his missions. It wasn't from the church of Jerusalem. You're like, well, the church of Jerusalem did everything and they were responsible. No, it's the church at Antioch. Not even in the land of Palestine and Israel. Uh, you have this church sending out missionaries. Um, and so it's churches doing the work of the ministry and and growing and being established and you could say okay these are the acts of the churches but i'm going to argue for you that that's not what luke wanted you to get you say really okay i want you to go to verse one okay and read this the former treatise have i made o theophilus of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. I'll stop right there. I wrote one book giving you an introduction to what Jesus started doing. What he began to teach, what he began to do. Which would indicate as you get into this book, what? 
He is not done. You want the continuation of the story, uh, you've got it here. That the Lord is continuing to do something. Um, and, and you go through, as you have in your, your notes here, it does tell us that Jesus began to do and teach in the previous uh, Gospel of Luke. This indicates that he's still working in Acts. He, and you say, well, how does he do this? Well, he's the one in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that he is going and commissioning these individuals to go out and do his work. Okay, so he is the one responsible for saying to these people, here's what you're going to do, and I'm telling you what you're going to do, and you're going to go out and do what I've asked you to do, and this is what you're going to accomplish. Uh, Verse uh, 8, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. You can take that word unto me and you could use it in multiple different ways, but you're going to be my witnesses and go out and do my work. They're not witnessing to Jesus. You know, he already knows the story. They're going out and being witnesses, uh, heralds for him. And they're going to do this. And what they're going to see is this expansion from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And the interesting thing when you get to the end of Acts is the church gets started. You know, the Holy Spirit's a, you know, a part of this and you have 120 that are doing this and by the end of the day you have 3,000 people that get saved and uh, you have uh, this going on and, and you find that uh, verse 41, 3,000 souls saved and then it talks about what the early church is doing. Verse 42, chapter 2. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. And fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, sold their possessions and goods, parted them to all men as every man has need. And they, continuing with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Then this statement... And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Who's doing the work there? You say, well, the apostles and church going around doing all that. Who's doing the work? The Lord. He's the one doing the saving. Kind of like, well, he's not here. Uh, He's using his body but he's the one that's getting the glory for it. As you go through the the book, you find certain occasions where Christ uh, actually interjects himself into the story. You have an occasion where in Acts chapter 9, here you have the Lord, Jesus Christ, showing up to Paul on the the, the road to Damascus, and he says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou? Hey, my church. No. People, no. He goes, why are you persecuting me? I mean, you're, you're doing this and it's an affront to who I am and what I'm trying to accomplish and what I'm trying to do and you are battling against this, what I'm trying to get accomplished. Um, and you go on in the story, you find uh, even in like, uh, places like um, when Paul's in Corinth and he's feeling like he should leave and the Lord makes a statement uh, to them that I have much people in this place. 
Okay, I, I, I have people here that need to be saved. You're going to stay here for a while. And he gets his direction directly from the Lord. I mean, you get through this book, and you have to be reminded of this fact at the end here. This book could appropriately be named The Acts of the Risen Lord. Because remember this, what did Jesus say when it came to the church? Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I will build my church. What you have in the book of Acts is that Christ is at work, though you don't get all, you don't see him working, he has his hands and his feet doing the work, okay, individuals, people doing this, but he's the one doing the work here, establishing his church. So when you get to this book, you ought to look at from, from that eye, okay? We look at the Gospels, here's what Jesus is doing and what he's teaching. What you're looking in the book of Acts is doing, you're going, oh, look at what Jesus is doing and continuing to do. He's establishing his church. He's very interested in it. It's not that he's gone back to heaven and is just sitting there with his feet up, waiting for everything to take place so that he can come back and rule and reign. No, he's very involved. He's very interested in what's going on right now and his church. And he is the one who empowers what's going on. And so as you go through this book, you just kind of look at it from that. Yes, the Holy Spirit is there. Yes, you have apostles. Yes, you have the church. But what you're seeing is what the Lord is continuing to do. He didn't stop when he went back to heaven. No, he's continuing to work and doing things. And so you read it from that perspective. As you go through it, you're kind of going, okay, there's a grander scheme here. You know, there's a bigger picture of what's being displayed here. Uh, Christ is doing something and accomplishing something that he didn't do while he was here, but he's going to accomplish it through others. Now, the outline of this book, as you go through it, establishes uh, for us what exactly he was looking to do. As you look at the uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, "...ye shall be witnesses unto me in, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria." and the uttermost parts of the earth. And as you read through the book, that's the outline for it. I mean, Luke gives it to you up front. Here's the outline. Okay? We're going to find out what Jesus is doing in establishing his church in Jerusalem. And you start off Pentecost, the healing of the man at the gate, beautiful, uh, Barnabas, Ananias, and Sapphira, uh, the taking care of the widows in the church. And so you, ha- you go, how many years take place there in the- those first couple of chapters? Uh, you know, we're kind of guessing, but we're looking at probably somewhere like seven years, maybe five to seven years, something that we're looking at there. But this church becomes a thriving church because you have one, 3,000 people get saved, another one, 5,000 people get saved in Jerusalem. I mean, if you have anything of numbers where you have a, a, a town of 100,000 people, and that's probably what the size of Jerusalem was, and just with the numbers we have recorded, uh, you've got 8,000 people getting saved. That's more than that. That would have a real impact on the city of Jerusalem. Um, and you have this going on. But 
as the work of God progresses, what happens? The devil opposes. And who does he use? Well, he uses the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, uh, especially an individual by the name of Paul. And so you see what goes on in Jerusalem. Stephen is killed. You get to Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. And I just want you to turn here because this is kind of the, the turning point where you go, okay, here's where the story changes. I mean, Saul in verse 3, I mean, he's mad that, the, you know, there's still people following Jesus after the example of Stephen. And so verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, uh, entering into every house, hailing men, dragging men and women, uh, committing them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. You go, okay, so they leave Jerusalem and where do they go? Well, verse 5, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them like oh okay so we're, we're in a new section here where we're now leaving jerusalem and we're going to samaria and do people get saved in samaria and the question is can they get saved um yeah they can because they do paul and peter or excuse me peter and uh John come down and confirm the fact that they can get saved. They're seeing this as a work of God. And so you go to chapters 8 and uh, 9, and you go through this, and there's people getting saved uh, in this uh, city. But then uh, you get to uh, chapter 9. You have uh, this expansion of the gospel because you see Paul going to... Where is he going? Paul's going to Damascus. Christianity, we will find out, okay, Christianity's gone to Damascus. That's an outside of Judea and Samaria. We're kind of getting to this transition point that the gospel's gotten further than just Jerusalem and the surrounding state of Judea and Samaria, uh, Samaritans being half-breeds, mix of Jews and other nations. And it really begins to switch right in chapter 10, because when you start off in chapter 10, you have a man and you know he's an Italian. It's Cornelius. Now he's in he's in Judea. He's in Caesarea. But he's a foreigner. I mean full-fledged. And the question comes, can a person like that get saved? Even though he, you know, he's a little bit different than everyone else. He doesn't worship a whole bunch of gods. He worships one god. He only believes that there's one god. He's a god-fearer as he's described, but can he be saved? So Peter, through divine vision, gets called there. He preaches to Cornelius, and while he's preaching, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes and fills this man, and you go from the rest of the book there on out, chapter 10, chapter 11, you suddenly have the founding of this church where you find out people went up the coast, and they're in this place called Antioch, and it's there where people were first called Christians. Little Christs. I mean, they're going everywhere talking about Jesus, and, and they're little Christ because people are like, oh, you're always talking about Christ. You know what? We'll just call you Christ. And it wasn't meant in a nice sense either. It was kind of a derogatory term, but the Christians take it on as a banner, banner of pride. Yeah, we are like Christ. You're right. Uh, we ought to be like that and reflect Him. And the rest of the book is the expansion of the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world because when you get to a chapter 28, where are you at? You're in Rome and all roads lead to Rome. And you go, okay, so he gave us the outline of the book right at the beginning. Yeah, he did. He's given us the outline uh, for this. Now, I will say this uh, for your notes, Christ displays his approval and notes the beginning of these things too. You say, how does he do it? 
It's when the Holy Spirit shows up and people speak in tongues. It's a sign gift. Remember, as you read through 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you will find that uh, it explains why people speak in tongues, and it was actually a sign to the Jews that God was working with other people. It was a sign of judgment. But as, as you have the starting of each new group, Pentecost, people start speaking in tongues. When you get to Acts chapter 8 and you have this preaching in Samaria and people are getting saved, they start speaking in tongues. When Peter and John come and confirm and they realize these people are truly saved, they are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you say, was it an obvious event that took place? Yeah, because you have an individual by the name of Simon the Sorcerer who comes along and tries to buy the Holy Ghost. You know, I want that kind of power. I was a magician when people aren't paying attention to me. I want the kind of power you have. I'm willing to pay for it. But it was obvious. But you don't, you know, after that, you don't really have this recording, you know, the Holy Ghost, is, you know, there's people speaking in tongues. But you got this new group. It's confirmation to the disciples. Oh, Samaritans get, can get saved? Really? I mean, they should have gotten that from John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. But they, you know, they're slow learners. And then you get to Cornelius, and when the gospel is being preached to him, all of a sudden the whole household believes, and they break out into the speaking of tongues. And so when you have, when you read Acts chapter 10 and 11, it's kind of like you read it, and it's like repeating the same story over again, because Peter has to go back, and he goes to Jerusalem and says, this guy got saved, and I'm going to explain the whole story. And so he's explaining it to the, the leaders at Jerusalem, and he goes, and the confirmation that he got saved was this, is that he and his whole household were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke in tongues and it was for the church of Jerusalem to realize, oh, okay, Romans can get saved. That, that means pretty much anyone can get saved. And so as you go through the book of Acts, there's this confirmation from God and that's why you have this event of speaking in tongues and this is why eventually tongues cease because what, what's being established is this new church. And there are signs that, okay, God really is at work here, and he will save certain people. And it's a sign to the Jews, God's working with other groups of people, and a sign to them also that for the church to recognize, yep, God's at work in them, because we have the Holy Spirit too, and this is what God did in our life. Those people are just as saved as we are. And so you have this confirmation, this building as you go throughout the book. And so you have this, that the good news is acceptable to all the world. Okay, God, God is uh, not just working with Jews or half-Jews. He's willing to give the gospel to anyone. And uh, it's not just a national, a national religion. It is a religion for all. Now, you say, what's the method? Okay, how did this expansion take place? Okay, so how is Christ doing this work? He's using individuals. And what are they supposed to do? Well, he tells you in chapter 1, verse 8, he shall be witnesses unto me. Okay, let me just ask you this. When you're in court, do witnesses have to make up anything in court? No. If they're being a proper witness, you know, tell the truth, whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God, okay. And they ask you questions on basically what you saw or what you know, what you saw not what you heard someone say about this or whatever, that, that you could at least testify to this. And 
it, it's a good study to go through sometime is just to go through the book of Acts and uh, if you read through it and just mark how many times this word witness comes up or there's sometimes it's the word it's translated testify. It's the same Greek word in the background. And just go through and mark it and see how many times it comes up. And you're going throughout the whole book and there's a whole bunch of people just witnessing and you go, what are they witnessing about? The things that we know Jesus did and the things that he said. What he did, what he said, and here's what he did, and we're explaining this to you and telling you, now you need to accept this. And they're not making up a message. They're not going, well, let's be creative here. No, they're just going around telling people about Jesus. Here's what he did, here's what he said. You need him. And uh, they're just merely being witnesses and God's going, okay, I'm going to use my Holy Spirit and he's going to empower your message to accomplish what I need to get done through you as my instruments. And so they declare who Jesus is, what he is, what he's doing. When individuals accepted this message, they gathered in local bodies called churches. So now you no longer have individuals going around proclaiming this message. You now have groups of people getting together And as a group, they're reflecting who Jesus is on a larger scale. See, we we can reflect Christ as individuals, but as a group, we can also reflect Christ. Much larger manner, but we can reflect Christ. And to glorify Christ, to magnify him. And that's what happened in this methodology. People going around telling people about Jesus, they get saved, they gather themselves, and in a larger manner reflect and glorify who Jesus is. And that's what you have, a whole bunch of establishments of local church bodies. People get saved, what happens? They gather to talk about Jesus. They establish churches, local churches all over the place. And this is how the church gets established. Uh, But that's how he builds his church. That's the method. And uh, it goes through the whole book of Acts. Now, characters. I put this down. Luke does not attempt to follow every Christian and apostle as they go out into the world witnessing. As we said, he chooses a select few people to get his outline to where he needs it to be at, to prove that this is what happened. And he follows, uh, he's selective in choosing certain characters to show the expansion of the good news. He spends much time following Peter initially. Peter is the leader of the 12 apostles, and those apostles were generally the apostles to the Jews, though you see that they aren't just the Jews only. They eventually go all over the world and give their life preaching to the nations, but uh, they're the ones who start off this. But you then follow Paul, and you go, why does he follow Paul? Because Paul was specifically told in his commissioning in Acts chapter 9 that you're the ascent one, that's what the word apostle means, you're the sent one to the Gentiles, to the nations. And so you have a following of Paul, and there's, there's side characters that you follow, Barnabas and others that you have uh, some side notes about, but in general you follow Paul until he gets to the uttermost parts of the earth, which is Rome, and he's preaching the gospel there. Now, the interesting thing, if you read the book of Romans as we are, and going through this on Sundays, you find out before Paul gets there, there's already a church been established. You're like, wait a second, I thought Paul started the church at Rome. No, there's a whole bunch of individuals that are already there that as individuals they came and were sharing the gospel with others, and, and pretty soon you have a church established there, and so when Paul gets there, there's already a church there. But Paul gets there, and he's at the center of all the known world. All roads lead to Rome, because you go to Rome, you can get anywhere in the known world at that time because of the road system. 
And Paul's there. Dwelling in Caesar's household. You know, he's living in his house. Of course, he's paying for all the accommodations. But he's a prisoner, but he's there. And so you have this, that he gets to Rome. Now, for us, as we read this book, you say, what's the application for us? Okay, what you have here is what's really expected of every generation. What you have covered is about 30 years of time. If we said this book is written in 80, 60, 62, uh, most suggest the fact that Jesus died in 80, 30, or somewhere around there. You have how many years covered? About 30 years. And in that 30 years' time, with people starting in their own Jerusalem, expanding to go to their own regions, we would call those like states or counties or whatever, or the surrounding counties and that type of thing, uh, eventually the gospel is going to get to the uttermost parts of the earth. But you get to another generation, there's a whole generation of people that have not heard of Jesus Christ. And so what does the next generation have to do? Next generation has to do the very same thing that these people are doing. Tell people about Jesus in your own Jerusalem, expand the boundaries and help people expand that message further in your region, but eventually what are you doing? You're getting the message of the gospel to the whole of the world. And then the next generation is supposed to do this. Uh, you go in this way, Acts gives us a pattern that each generation of the church has a responsibility and can reach their Jerusalem and the world. That's what it's showing us. Now, it will not be through, you know, all the Holy Spirit miracles and all of those things, but it's establishing this, that that message at the beginning that we are to be witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. It wasn't like, okay, well, it stopped, we're done. No, Jesus is still working today. Jesus is very interested in this church and you as individuals. He's up in heaven and he is uh, desiring for you to be what you ought to be and reflecting who he is to those that you're around. And he's using you to accomplish his work right now. In fact, there's some organizations that are out there that call themselves Acts 29, you know, the rest of the story. Okay, that's nice. But they are getting some understanding of this, that it didn't just stop in that generation. Each generation is responsible to be reaching its world and its local community and tell them about Jesus. You don't have to create anything. The message is already there. You just have to tell and that's the responsibility of it. So Acts gives us the first occasion where this has gone on, how God, uh, through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ himself, is building his church, and he's doing this generation by generation, reaching people and gathering them to himself. So it's a great book to read, uh, lots of interesting stories, but that's the overall view as you read through it uh, for you to understand what's going on in this book, why it's there, and why those stories. So, Lord, we thank you. We pray that uh, we would uh, be able to be individuals that see you work, still work. You're a great God, uh, and it's not that you've taken time off for the last 2,000 years, that uh, you're just as interested in your church today as you were 2,000 years ago. It's those individual members of your body accomplishing 
the tasks that have had to have been set before them. And Lord, we do pray that uh, in our generation that there would be thousands upon thousands upon millions that would hear of Jesus and understand and accept him. I mean, we look forward to that day where uh, the church no longer exists and we're gathered together with you, with people from every tribe, nation, tongue, glorifying you before the throne. And so, Lord, uh, we look forward to that day, but may we accomplish your work now and be your tools and instruments to be able to do what you need to accomplish. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.